This is Abacus. I'm Bob the CPA. My guest today is Mario Lucibello. He started his career in Big Four Audit and quickly decided small firm tax was a better fit. So I did start at one of the uh, Big Four firm. I started with Ernst & Young. Um, I was only there maybe a year and a half, two years, and then started at this firm, Greenhouse Reardon. But more or less, when I took the opportunity, it, it was knowing that, you know, partner track was going to be, you know, where I would be. Today, he's going to tell us about life as a small firm partner and the skills you'll need if that's the career path for you. And then, in today's coaching note, I'll tell you why a good outcome doesn't always mean you made the right choice. All this coming up on Abacus. Let's go. Learn everything you need to know to have a successful and fulfilling accounting career. Whether you're on the partner track or you're making your own path, this is Abacus. Hey guys, Bob here. Just a quick heads up that this is the last episode of season one. It's been an amazing season that started out as an experiment and quickly became one of my favorite parts of the week. Don't worry, podcasting isn't like TV where you have to worry about your favorite shows being canceled between seasons. In fact, I'm the one who makes the programming choices around here, and I've already signed myself up for season two. If you want to be notified when season two starts, pause this episode real quick and go subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher of choice. Or head over to abacusshow.com and sign up there. Okay, now on to the interview with Mario Lucibello. All right. So, Mario, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. No problem. No problem. I'm uh, happy to do it. So before we get into your career story and start sharing a little bit of what you do, how exactly do you answer the question, what do you do these days? Um, you know, that's funny. That, that's a good question. I guess it depends on the audience. Usually what I, what I say is, well, you know, I'm more or less a small business uh, CPA, you know, helping clients that are, you know, either smaller businesses, you know, up to hundred million dollars or just higher net worth individuals that have something complicated tax-wise. And if you had to pick one thing, what's the best part of your role? You know, to be honest, it's just working with clients and you feel like you're helping people. You know, uh, every day, you know, people always think the accountant is kind of sitting in the back room at a game counter or, you know, just doing the things that nobody else wants to do. But I'll tell you, at least half of my day to 75% of my day is spent just communicating with my clients. So it's, it's more or less either on phone calls, Skype calls, email. Um, you know, they have a problem and, you know, they hire you to fix that problem or explain how they can best manage that problem. And do you have any recent or even not so recent success stories of you helping a client with a particular problem that you're really proud of helping them solve? Let's see. Recent success stories. Trying to think of a good example here for you. Well, I guess one recently, um, so a little background. My wife is also a uh, divorce attorney. And, uh, you know, so sometimes I'll help her with, like, uh, property settlements. And, you know, someone proposed a property settlement that actually had a boatload of appreciated assets. So, you know, client says, oh, that sounds fine. You know, a couple million dollars. You know, that's good. But, you know, if you're getting a couple million dollars in appreciated stock or let's say it's a retirement account, then, you know, it's really not worth $2 million. It's worth the net tax after that. Um, so long story short, renegotiations happened and 
instead the client received a cash settlement, which was truly worth the $3 million that they expected. That's really interesting because you wouldn't even, a lot of people who aren't familiar with tax probably wouldn't even think that that's going to be an issue and that probably would have blindsided them if they didn't have your help on that. Exactly. Exactly. You know, they, they don't think, they say, well, if the account balance says $2 million, you know, is that truly $2 million? Well, you know, you're not going to get $2 million worth of goods and services, you know, after you pay the tax. And backing up a little bit, your role right now is you're a partner, correct? Correct. And what was your firm name? Greenhouse Reardon Company. Okay. Um, so on that track, a lot of people I feel like dream of becoming a partner someday, whether they're going to big four straight out of school or they're working at a local or a mid-tier firm. To me, that always seemed like a very abstract, lofty goal because it was longer in the future, especially when I was just starting out. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your career path um, that got you to where you are today? Sure. Um, well, you know, I'm sure you've looked at my like LinkedIn profiles or whatever. So I did start at one of the uh, big four firm. I started with Ernst & Young. Um, I was only there maybe a year and a half, two years, and then started at this firm, Greenhouse Reardon. But more or less, when I took the opportunity, it, it was knowing that, you know, partner track was going to be, you know, where I would be. Um, didn't know how long it would take and um, and things like that. And, of course, still had to perform to be able to get there. But that that was pretty much it. And then I was made partner maybe two years ago now, something like that. So how many years had you been with the firm when you made partner? Uh, I want to say four or five. And are there any particular skills or habits or relationships, anything that you took away from your time at the big four that you think has helped you out throughout your career since then? Honestly, uh, none whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> none whatsoever. In my, I just such a short stay in the big four that truly I didn't learn very much. Um, it, it was, it's great on a resume. You know I mean? I could have went pretty much anywhere. Um, but to be honest, you know, knowledge wise, it didn't help anything contacts. It didn't help anything other than actually colleagues, maybe, um, you know, even though I still don't really stay in touch with many of them, but other than that, you know, it, it didn't help them drum up any business or, or anything like that. It, it was just more or less a, uh, I guess a resume booster. If you're really trying to get into industry, in my opinion, which I think is a reason a lot of people go that route. So. Yeah. So when you were deciding to head out from your, your gig at EY, what were some of the things that were going through your head? Uh, how did you decide that it was time to move on? To be honest, I, I really just didn't like this huge business aspect of it. Um, you, you never, and I guess the other thing too, and I should say this, is I was in audit. So you never really feel like you're helping anybody when you're an auditor. It was just that, you know, you're always dealing with staff of the company because you're dealing with these gigantic companies and you're just bothering people to get information that you need. You know, you're making their day longer more than anything. So, you know, you're dealing with an accounts payable clerk that really can care less about your audit. You know, now if I'm doing an audit at you know, my small firm, you know, I'm dealing with the owner and the business owner says, well, the longer you're here, the more I have to pay you. So let me get you all that information you need because, you know, I'm paying you to be here. So they, they actually care about it, you know, versus with the big companies. It's like, well, whatever, I'll, I'll give you this for now because I want to go home. And then you, you can comb through it. You'll figure out that you don't need it in a couple of days, and then you can come get it when I actually have time. 
Mario is somewhat unique in that he made the jump from audit to tax. I hear a lot of people who are either in audit or tax right now, and they talk about how they wish they could make a change, but they think it's impossible. So I asked Mario to give us the real story of how he did it and the challenges he faced along the way. And so you mentioned you started an audit and now you're working on a lot of stuff, especially more complex tax situations. Right. Was that a difficult jump for you moving from audit over to tax? Yeah, like the first year was tough because, uh, I mean, my first tax season, I never did a tax turn. I never even did my own tax. Um, but, you know, just throw it into the fire and you learn it. Um, and I did go on to get my master's in taxation, which has helped a lot. Um, but, yeah, that first year was very, very difficult tax-wise. I, I am a huge fan of learning by doing, though. <laughs> I think you kind of have to be, especially if you're going to go to a smaller firm, that's for sure. Yep. Yeah, there's no, like, sweet training programs when you're going into a small 10-person firm. You know, it's, it's learning from the other staff, learning from the current partners, and, um, you know, really just, you know, making your job to ask as many questions as possible, saying, okay, this is what we're doing, why are we doing it, this is what we're doing, why are we doing it, and then sooner or later you learn why, and once you learn why, you can apply it to, you know, many other things. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Was there anyone who especially helped you out when you first transitioned, or was it more of a team effort, everybody helping you get onboarded? Yeah, I pretty much bothered everybody who would listen <laughs> you know, and who would help out. I mean, we're a small firm, so there was only, you know, four or five other staff in that office. So pretty much every one of them helped me out. I think that uh, younger people tend to not want to bother other people around them. And I think it's important to balance that with also you need to learn. So exactly. <laughs> I think there's a good lesson in there. Exactly. Um, it, to be honest, that is actually one thing I did learn at the big firm. They were big firm was always saying, you know, if you don't know, ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. So, you know, that was pretty much ingrained to me, um, you know, coming from the big firm that, you know, that's the only way you're going to learn is by asking. And um, they did have a good culture with that at the, uh, the big four. One of the main reasons I like to have people like Mario on the show is to give you all an idea of the different career paths available to accountants. And one of the best ways to learn about someone else's job is to hear them talk about what they do on a typical day. I'll let Mario tell you how he spends his days and why he knows so much about legalized marijuana. And you mentioned earlier that you spend a lot of your day communicating with clients. Do you right. have a typical workday that you could walk us through or is it different day to day? Well, that, that's, to be honest, the one thing that I like about public accounting. It is very different every day. Um, so there's no real typical work day. Um, but you know, I can give you an idea. Let me see. I could, I could just scroll through my email and tell you what, what I've been working on the past few weeks. Let's see. Well, yeah, so I have a client that is, um, actually opening a small, almost kind of sort of private equity fund. So they are, you know, doing their entity restructuring now. So they're splitting their one entity into three. And um, so I'm consulting with the lawyers, with the owners, and with the investors. So trying to make sure everybody understands and it's being done in a manner that's not going to, you know, kill everybody with taxes. So that's one item. Let's see. What else do we got? Ah, yeah. So a client did just buy a... Uh, a Gulfstream to jet, so we're trying to figure out a way to deduct that. Let's see. Ah, 
Yeah, I've been communicating with, so locally in Connecticut, uh, medical marijuana was recently made legal. So, you know, not too many people know this, but uh, because, you know, it, it's legal in the state, but it's also federally illegal. So there's certain rules on what you can and can't deduct from your taxes because it's, you know, sale of illegal substances. So I've been communicating with the other CPAs in Connecticut on how, you know, they're going to handle the actual filing of the tax returns for these marijuana dispensaries. That's really interesting. So it, it would be different for them for their state taxes versus their federal returns. Well, the real rule is actually, it's, it's section 280E. It says you're not allowed any deductions for illegal activity. So federally, they could say, well, you're not allowed any deductions. But, you know, there, there are certain exceptions to that rule and other court cases out there that, you know, we don't really need to get into. But let's say there are ways you can deduct either portions of it. You can always deduct your direct costs. But, you know, I mean, that could be a major tax problem. I mean, but this, this law was enacted for, like, uh, you know, the actual illegal drug trafficking people that are, you know, they didn't want to go to jail for not filing tax returns. But now they're saying, you know, you can't you know, deduct these certain things. So it was meant for that, but now it's kind of trickling down to the actual legal activities. That's really interesting. I'm kind of curious where that's going to go in the next few years as more and more states move that direction. So I might have to check back in with you. Uh... You and me both. <laughs> you and me both. It would just make my life easier if they just repealed the stupid law or, or figured out a way to, um, you know, add in things that are actually state legal. Let's see, what else are they doing here? Oh, yeah, well, a client sold the business, which was, like, kind of sort of located in California. But, you know, they were also, the actual owners are not located in California. So the question is, is the sale of the business subject to California tax? So, that you know, I've been researching that the past few days, going back and forth with them. Oh, here's another good one is... Uh, so, you know, as you know, with all these tax extenders, all these things that the government likes to play with, they just recently passed them into legislation. So one of them is actually like a qualified small business stock, um, like exception. So without getting into that, one of my other clients is a business broker, and he's going to actually have me on his podcast to explain that, the qualified small business stock. So I've been going back and forth with him explaining saying, well, this is how you have to set it up for it to apply. And then when they sell their company, they'll actually have no gain on the sale of their company. Oh, wow. Yeah, which very, very recently they made that into law permanently. Before it was one of those things that would disappear here and there, and it would just be subject to AMT, so nobody really got a benefit. But now it looks like it might actually be uh, beneficial. Ah, and then, of course, internally, we're, uh, we're, redo we're redoing all of our computers, like our whole computer system that's like virtual desktop thing. I've been working with our IT guy for the past month. And he's actually implementing as we speak, I think, at the office. I'm actually working from home today, and I actually have my four-month-old in my arms as we speak. You got a lot going on, that's for sure. So uh, it's <laughs> nice to hear that it's there's a lot of variety, because I feel like a lot of people think of accounting as, you know, this boring job where you go and you sit and you do cash recs uh, on the yeah, work day two and whatever. I can sure I've done no cash reconciliations in uh, probably the past couple of years. You know, occasionally a client might have a, a major bookkeeping crisis that I might have to teach them. But, you know, I mean, I do no bookkeeping whatsoever. Um, it's just what I try to do 
you know, if my client doesn't already have a bookkeeper, is try to help them find one or teach them how to do it. You know, a lot of business owners with, you know, technology now, if you only spend a few hours a month, you know, you can kind of handle it yourself. What advice, personal or professional, would you give to your 25-year-old self? 25, let's think. Uh, 25 was only, uh, was only five years ago. Um, where was I at 25? I was probably just coming into the firm I'm at now for maybe a year or two. Um, I mean, to be honest, it depends on your goal. And my goal is to become partners. And to be, it takes two things to become a partner. And one is, of course, technical expertise. And the second is, you know, contact and um, being able to build a business. Um, so, you know, my recommendation to my 25-year-old self would be, you know, keep working on those two things, you know, as much as you can. And then lastly, I guess, is there anything we haven't covered that you think people would really like to know? Um, anything that they would really like to know. So, so, the, so more or less the audience is um, accounting professionals, so people looking for, uh, you know, jobs in the accounting industry and things like that. For the most part, yeah. I'm Again, we're still just uh, starting out, so who knows where it'll go, but the target audience to begin with is uh, accounting professionals working in either public or uh, corporate. Yeah. So if I had to give anybody advice in the, you know, in the accounting world is, um, you know, what I keep seeing coming out of the big four firms is everybody is going into industry. Um, you know, they're going from, you know, one of the big four to a Bank of America, American Express, uh, you know, all these huge companies. And, you know, mainly they're, they're going there because they see the hours as being horrible at the big four firms. Um, and, and I completely agree with that. They are. Horrible. Um, but don't discount the idea of being at a smaller because, you know, the problem when you're going into industry from the big four is that you're going to be doing the same thing quarterly, the same thing, you know, for half a year, the same thing for year end for the rest of your life. Um, you know, as you heard from the earlier interview, nothing about my day is at all repetitive. Um, you know, can a small firm match the compensation of a, you know, a gigantic Fortune 1000 company? Of course not. But in the long term, I truly believe you'll be a happier person and you'll have much more meaningful work and you'll feel more like you're actually helping people, you know, if you do stay in that public accounting role. Thank you for that. What is the best way for people to uh, find you online? Do you guys have a Twitter or LinkedIn or? Um, yeah, you can, you can always find me on LinkedIn, uh, Mario Lucibello, or uh, email mario at com. Or just greenhouserooting.com. You can check out our website and, you know, all my email and, and whatnot is there. All right. We'll have links to all those in the show notes for this, too, so people can uh, click over to the website and go find you that way. Very good. All right, Mario, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Anytime. You have a good one. Thanks again to Mario for coming on the show. You can find links to his firm's site and everything else we just talked about in the show notes for this episode at abacusshow.com. Each episode, I like to share a little tip or tidbit that, while probably not life-changing, will hopefully help you out in some small way. This is Coaching Notes. If my friend Amy wants to fly to Vegas and bet her life savings on black, 
Would you think that was a good decision? We can all usually agree that she's making a pretty bad decision. Because mathematically, her expected return is negative. The house always wins, right? But what if I told you that my friend just got back from Vegas? She bet her entire life savings on black and she won! Now, at least some of you are thinking, wow, what a gutsy decision, but it totally paid off and that was the right choice. But that's not true. She made a terrible choice, and the fact that she got lucky doesn't change that. The opposite is also true. If I was planning to literally bet the house on black, and at the last minute I decided against it, I would be crushed if the next spin landed on black. But the fact that I could have won doesn't mean that I made a bad decision. Basing your future decisions on the outcome of your past decisions makes a lot of sense in a lot of cases. But it's important to remember that good outcomes doesn't always mean you made a good decision. And you need to take a moment to reflect on that before you make the same bad decisions again in the future without the luck. Sometimes it's hard to tell if you made the right decision or if you just got lucky. And that's okay too. That's part of life. Everything in life isn't black or white. Just take a moment to think about your decisions and why you're making them. This simple act of reflection will help you make better decisions in the future. And that's your coaching note. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, it's fast and easy to click on that five-star rating in iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. And don't forget, you can get links and show notes for everything we covered today, or check out all of our past episodes by visiting abacusshow.com. See you next time.